Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, we preview some great overnight programming on Chorus with Let's Talk host Danny Stover and Alan Cross, whose name you may recognize. He joins me to chat about the ongoing history of new music now in its 30th year and past its 1,000th episode. We also chat a bit about uh, the passing of April Wine lead singer Miles Goodwin, who had such a huge impact on Canadian music. He died on Sunday at the age of 75 in Halifax. You can find both those shows, of course, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts as well. The Forbes Top 30 Under 30 celebrates some of the best and brightest young people out there. And one of them this year in the healthcare category is a fourth-year med student from UBC. And his story is as much about the why as it is the what and how his younger sister and her complex medical needs helped really propel him to a career in medicine. And speaking of success, perhaps the greatest women's soccer player ever, Canada's Christine Sinclair, number 12, is playing her final international match on Tuesday in Vancouver. They renamed BC Place Christine Sinclair Place as they host Australia. It caps off an absolutely stunning career, a record 190 international goals in 330 games heading into Tuesday night. Former teammate uh, Rianne Wilkinson is with me to chat about Sinclair's career and her incredible legacy. But first, we hop to Oshawa, outside of Toronto, where a kangaroo had been on the lam for more than three days before it was finally caught by local police around 3 a.m. Monday. All went well, except one officer was punched in the face. We look into how the kangaroo is doing, but perhaps more importantly, how did it get loose and how to make sure it doesn't happen again? We're going to start start with an incredible story about a kangaroo that was on the loose uh, in Oshawa outside of Toronto for a couple of days. The story has a happy ending. We'll talk about that uh, coming up. But I wanted to talk first about Miles Goodwin, because obviously being from Montreal, although let's be honest, they were an East Coast band, but they lived in Montreal. April Wine were based in Montreal for a very long time. Miles Goodwin passed away yesterday at the age of 75 in Halifax. And uh, I was just listening to some April Wine stuff. We'll talk to Alan Cross uh, of the ongoing history of new music about April Wine a little bit later in the show. Uh, but just want to know what you thought. I, I got to see them a couple of times. I remember the first time, this must have been like, I don't know, mid-90s, maybe early 90s. My dad said, hey, I have tickets to April Wine. I'm like, April Wine? Man, I don't think I've heard them in years. It was a time they were kind of in fallow a little bit. Uh, you, know, they, you know, all bands have their ups and downs. And I took the tickets and I went and what a show, like what a show April Wine put on that night. And I thought, oh, I, you know, I think I recognize a few of their songs, maybe just between you and me and Song of, Song of the Gypsy Queen, a few of the others. And it turned out you, I knew every one of their songs because it was so ubiquitous on the radio. So always had a soft spot for April Wine ever since then. Let me know what your favorite April Wine memory or concert or tune is. one 9898 is the text line. one 399 9898 We'll share those throughout the show as a tribute to Miles Goodwin. Man, we've lost a lot of great Canadian musicians uh, in the last 12 months or so. For me and Tyson at the end of last year to Gordon Lightfoot in May and now um, Miles Goodwin of April Wine as well. Well, first up again, I thought on a cold, cloudy Monday in December, for many of us at least, we could start with some strange but good news. That search for a missing kangaroo ended with success uh, before sunrise near Toronto this morning. The female red roo had escaped, uh, I guess, on Thursday into Friday from an Oshawa Zoo and Fun Farm during a stop there while being transported to a zoo in Quebec. As she bounded off into the wilderness, there were images captured of her on the loose in wintry farmer's fields. A strange sight, especially as it took off at speeds that I understand 
can reach about 60 kilometers an hour. Not sure she was going that fast, but man, she was moving quick in those videos. Uh, here is uh, what, uh, well, here's what Cameron uh, Prada had to say about uh, trying to catch her. It wasn't too fun. Uh, I was doing my best, but, uh, you know, I'm just a, a guy with a net. A guy with a net. Yeah, there's an image, a video taken of Cameron running after at one point. As this went on, there were, of course, concerns that the largest of all kangaroos out there, this uh, the Red Roo, were more used to the outback of Australia than a Canadian winter, of course, might struggle to survive in a strange environment with temperatures dipping. Luckily, it stayed warm over the weekend. Here's a Haika Tahir, who captured uh, the marsupial on camera on Friday. I was more just concerned for the kangaroo because it was like it obviously doesn't know the area so you kind of just like felt bad for it because also there's coyotes and stuff in that area. Well, as I mentioned over overnight, an officer with the officers with the local Durham police force spotted the kangaroo, called handlers, were briefed on how to capture it by the tail apparently. All went according to plan. Well, just about one of the officers seems to have been not badly hurt but punched in the in the face during the capture. One of our officers will punch him with base by him, but they'll be on the <laughs> There you have it. Uh, Kevin Prady is, or Prado rather, is park supervisor and head keeper for the Oshawa Zoo and Fun Farm, and he joins me now. Cameron, thank you so much. Hey, not a problem. Uh, glad to be on. Yeah, long day for you. I know you you woke up to about 100 missed calls, right? Because this was all going on as you were still asleep at 3 a.m. Uh, yeah, but I've uh, I've woken up to about 100 missed calls every day this weekend so far at this point in time. it's uh, I'm getting kind of used to it. You must be relieved, right? I mean, I know people sort of saw a bit of humor in it, but honestly, it, it, it's not a fun, especially for sort of a domesticated kangaroo, it's not a fun place to find themselves in. Absolutely. This It was honestly such a relief this morning um, to have woken up and found out that the, the animal had been... Uh, uh, captured and was safe in our hands. It was it was such a relief. Um, you know these these animals they they're they're wonderful. They're they're innocent. They they love getting pet. They love getting scratched. Um, part of my job every day is to go in there and interact with the ones that we have, and uh, to to think that there was just one out there that was that was scared. It 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 was hurtful. Every single day I, I lost sleep over it. There's a video that I was mentioning earlier of you chasing uh, the red. I don't know her name, actually. I guess Nathan is the other one, right? Uh, but uh, this one, and you were sort of trying to chase it across a field with a net. And, and I don't know how fast it was going, but it looked like it was moving. I don't know exactly how fast it was going either, but I certainly know it was going much faster than I was. And uh, I was doing my best to keep up. But at that point in time, I'd already been chasing this thing around uh, for quite a few hours and I, you know i was just doing my best i was doing my best to make sure that this thing got back safe and sound and and uh i could only do what i could like i said in the video i'm i'm just a dude with a net and uh i'm just incredibly grateful that the volunteers and team chelsea and durham region police were were uh, able to stay just as vigilant as the rest of us and and, uh, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning this morning, Durham Region Police were able to get it, get it spotted and get punched in the face by it, and, but still at the same time be able to uh, get a hold of it. Yeah, I guess grabbing by the, getting, getting by the tail is the most effective way, but I guess they wouldn't much like it. 
Well, grabbing it by the tail is actually the best way to to control a kangaroo, um, simply because it is it's an incredibly muscular uh, appendage that they have, and uh, they they don't really have the ability to turn around and strike at you when you have a hold of their tail. Um, and it's it's not going to hurt them. It's not going to cause them any pain. And uh, it's it's the best way to keep control of them while uh, um, not doing any harm to them. Right. But still, it, it managed to get a punch out, which is, uh, I, I suppose these things happen. Not to confuse, because the females are a bit small. I mean, we often see those images on, obviously, on YouTube and so on of the young males sort of boxing, and they're massive, right? They look like X-Men. But the females are a little bit smaller, right? I mean, not small by any stretch of the imagination, but smaller than that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, you you if if you were to take a look at a full-grown male, you would say, "Holy cow, this guy goes to goes to the gym every day, and he does not skip leg day either." Um, but you know, the females are are certainly quite a bit smaller, quite a bit uh, easier to handle, and they're also a lot more docile. Uh, they're not typically as aggressive. Um, and uh, the fact that this officer uh, got got punched in the face is, I'm guessing, simply because the, the kangaroo was just trying to get away, as mm-hmm. as you know any any animal would would in that situation. But I'm very glad that the officer was able to maintain control, and uh, yeah, get get this thing uh, into back into safe hands. Right. Tell me a bit about how she got away in the first place. There was a, this is, I mean, I think I've heard this told a few times, but they were transporting two, right, from uh, from somewhere to Quebec, and they stopped off at uh, around you t- just to get them get their, get them a rest and get them to stretch their legs, so to speak. I guess kangaroos need to do that. Yeah, so uh, it was being transferred from a facility to, to a, another facility in Quebec, and we were essentially just a stopover. Uh, the kangaroos were going to be staying a couple of days at uh, at our facility. We were going to be taking care of them, uh, giving them food and water and, and keeping them warm and whatnot, while uh, uh, another group of transporters would come uh, meet at our place, pick up the the individuals, and then head, bring them out to their, their new home. And uh, unfortunately... Uh, you know, when you're dealing with animals, you're dealing with things that can be unpredictable at times. And this is just one of those very, very, very un- unfortunate, unpredictable events that, that happened. And I'm incredibly glad that it ended up working out in, in the best uh, for everyone. Yeah. Tell me a bit about uh, red kangaroos, because obviously we know where they're, they're indigenous to, to Australia and, and they can handle the harshness of the outback. But what are they like in terms of their ability to handle something like what they found, what this one found itself in, uh, in your area over the past few nights? Well, Australia does actually get pretty cold uh, and kangaroos do have the ability to uh, withstand uh, weather that similar, very similar to what we've had over the past uh, little while. Um, you know, it does snow in Australia. It does get pretty mm-hmm. cold, and these these animals do have big fur coats that uh, they can handle. Um, also, they are from the outback, and they're used to being able to forage on whatever types of food they can find. And Canada is, if one thing, full of food. We're, there are cornfields that have not been harvested around here, and there are uh, fields that are still full of grass that is very green. It 
probably feasted for the past couple of days and uh, it had plenty of fresh water to get at as well. So I'm, I'm sure it was pretty scared, but it definitely wasn't lacking for food or water at all. Right. And some concerns, no doubt, about just sort of the usual things. I understand vehicles, right? Lights, uh, normal predators in the area, coyotes and so on. That would have been a concern as well. Yes, absolutely. Cars probably would have been the biggest concern for us uh, because that is the biggest thing that it would have not been used to. Um, coyotes, uh, simply because of their inherent nature with kangaroos, you know, they're used to dingoes and, and other predators that right. that would be in Australia. This this particular kangaroo it was born and bred in Canada, so it's not from Australia. However, it's just in their inherent nature to be able to run from predators when whenever uh, confronted with them. And so that was not really the biggest concern. My Honestly, my biggest concern the entire weekend was with people. Uh, cars, with, with people who were curious, trying to go up to it, that didn't necessarily have experience with it. And I'm, I'm just very glad that, uh, that the, the folks that did ever end up seeing it, they, they did the right thing by contacting the people that, uh, that would be able to handle this. Uh, how's she doing, by the way? I forgot to ask you what her name was, because I think someone was asking what her name was. Honestly, uh, that is a very good know. question. I don't <laughs> think she has a name at this point. So I've been, as people have been asking me about this, I've yeah. been throwing this out there saying uh, it would be it would be great if uh, folks could get in touch with us and uh, let us know what they would love the name to be. Uh, yeah. You know, they can get in touch with us through Facebook or, or, or what have you. And uh, yeah, I... <laughs> yeah. Ashi or Schwa, we could call available. it Ashi or Schwa. There are, there are. How's she doing, by the way? I, I mean, it, it, what, what a, uh, yeah. I mean, you, you said she grew up in captivity and she's quite docile and used to being around humans and so on. So, how's she doing tonight? Uh, she is uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, this morning, she spent the vast majority of her time napping. Uh, I I got to work relatively early and I went in there and I the first thing I, that I did was I gave them a whole bunch of food. Uh, she ate uh, she ate as much as she could and then uh, laid down in her nice little warm environment and I kept an eye on her all day. She napped and she was napping alongside and snuggling with other kangaroos. Uh, and yeah, she's, she seems to be doing very, very much better. I think she's calmed down. She has, she is much happier now than, than she was over the past few days. That's for sure. Yeah. I was reading today that, uh, that the government provincial, the province is going to look into this, of course, as, as they always do. Uh, any lessons learned here is, I mean, is there, are there a few, you, you talked about it getting away from its handlers, which happens, but uh, are there things to tighten up in, in, in view of this happening? Absolutely. Uh, I, and, and to be honest, I, I, dealt, I dealt with that with our, our particular organization. Uh, I dealt with that on Friday morning. The second that I heard about this happening, I, I made sure to get in contact with, with the folks that, uh, that were responsible. And I made sure to let them know that I am going to be there um, uh, any time that anything like this does happen, and we've now got other other um, uh, regulations in place, other other you know uh, things things to do. We've got we've got the facilities 
there to to ensure that this doesn't happen again. And I'm going to be there every single time that something like this happens so that it doesn't. Right. Because this uh, has just been an abs- – this has just been an – it has been a, a heck of a weekend for me, and I don't want to experience anything like this again. So I'm I'm going to do what I can to make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, and 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 what to from now? I, I, where to from now? I guess I guess they head to where they were supposed to head to, right? The pair that were on their way, that that journey continues. They're going to be staying at our at uh, our facility for the next couple of days, um, just so that we can keep an eye on them to make sure that everything's okay with them. Uh, and then once she's fully settled down, we understand that she's good. Then she will be loaded up and head on off to her next home in Quebec. Well, Cameron, uh, all's well that ends well, I guess, in this case. Thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you guys very much for having me. I appreciate it. Once a little more conversation is done, you're going to be hearing something new and something very good uh, that comes out of Toronto uh, called Let's Talk. It's a, it's a different concept on how it's built together. It's really a, a sort of a look at news stories from across the network in a different way with a slightly different spin. It sort of digs into the little stories, digs into the headlines a bit, and um, it's well-produced, well-told, and well-done. And for a preview of it, I was really happy to, uh, to bring on someone whose show, I mean, it's been on for a while now. And it's it's just a really good it's really good radio, and Danny Stover is the host of Let's Talk, and she joins me now. Danny, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Listen, folks in Toronto are going to know uh, what the show is about more or less, but people in the other part other parts of the country might not know as much. Tell me a bit about uh, Let's Talk. It's a great name. It's a great name. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, oh my gosh, naming things is so annoying. But uh, we settled on Let's Talk. Um, yeah, it's I, I kind of liken it to it's a clip show, but don't call it a clip show. So essentially what I do is, you know, we've got the entire chorus radio network that spans across Canada and we've got some amazing hosts and guests and shows and topics. And I was like, well, once they're done, they're kind of done. And that's something I do love about radio is this kind of like one time only vibe. But I'm like, there's so much stuff that's kind of falling through the cracks. And if you maybe missed, you know, listening to a little more conversation one day. You don't want to miss those great conversations. And so um, part of my show is kind of repurposing, taking content from those other shows, um, you know, allowing us to kind of zoom in on a topic and focus in on something. And then it also allows for me to give my weird little take on things. And uh, at the end of the day, it's it's kind of turned into um, this this really fun kind of magazine show. I mean, it's it's a little bit more laid back. It's a little bit more... You know, I, I'm never quite gripping. I'm always kind of sitting back and being like, I'll invite you to think about it this way. And, you know, sometimes we take the piss. It, it, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I, which is great because you come at it from the perspective of a listener, right? Which is, I mean, sometimes when you're doing the shows, you're sort of thinking about the topic matter and you're always, you always think about the listener. But in this case, you get to sort of be both. You get to, you get to kind of process what was yeah. said and then not necessarily reinterpret it, but maybe find an angle that sometimes hosts like myself, we leave questions dangling, right? You just don't, you don't think of it at the time. And it's great to have sort of someone come in and say, ah, oh, you know, wasn't that interesting? And then yeah. take it from there. I love listening to like a conversation and hearing that little star piece of audio or that question that I'm like, oh, that really something my brain hooked on that for some reason. Um, and then kind of exploring that. And I think uh, what I say is I have the magic power of context. I I, I know exactly what the interviews are going to be. Whereas someone like you, you can try as you might to get it to go a certain way, but you just never know. And so I kind of have this 
ability to be like, listen, here's what you're going to hear. Um, and then we can have a little talk on the other side, or here's what I want you to listen for. Um, or in some cases, you know, the, the host is just asking really awesome questions. And I'm like, this is an example of like a great, you know, moving the conversation forward. And I want you to listen because there, there's times where a question comes up that I'm just like, wow, I can't even believe you thought to ask that. I've never, I wouldn't even know how to phrase it. And it comes, it goes right across the spectrum too for listeners who uh, who will be listening to your show across the country. It, it does cover a wide breadth of topics and, and from everything from the super serious to the not serious at all. Yeah, I my kind of guiding principle is I take my silly serious. So I am a silly person. I am kind of jokey and sarcastic, but I do... I, use, I, I come from a rock radio background and I had a bit of an epiphany where I was like, you know what? I think I like the news more than I like music. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, I feel like I'm in the perfect place for me. Um, so it is a little bit, yeah, more on the lighter side, but that's not to say that we don't touch on topics that are that are deeper and darker um, because at the end of the day, we, I want to be informed. And, and because I'm taking from uh, shows like yours and shows like Mornings with Simi and shows like, you know, Devin Peacock in London and what have you, um, I am getting a, a big, like I do have a big pull of things that I can, a big pull, a big pull yeah, of things yeah. I can pull from. There you go. Uh, yeah. You have like, either the buffets in front of you. You just have to decide what you want to pick, right? It's uh, yes. it must, the, and now that you have it, I mean, you've always dealt with a national, with national programming, but now you have a national audience as well. So that may, not that it changes things, but it does have to come into the, into the, into the calculation, so to speak. It does. It's uh, I, this is a part of the challenge that I'm kind of excited for because I I like doing that and figuring out ways. It's kind of like the Seinfeld effect, right? Where it's like they've taken things that are really, really specific, but they flip them into like, don't you hate when this happens? And we can all relate. So we can all relate to that really annoying specific thing. And I think that's a, a really interesting way that I'm looking forward to kind of tackling some topics with that in mind of like, what's the the nub of this that is the annoyance that everyone can get behind? Or what's the nub of this that everyone can kind of say, yeah, you know what? I don't feel that way. Or I actually do feel that way. And I'm, I'm probably rambling now, but I think my example is the story last week of Sports Illustrated was using yes. AI. Yeah. And, and so I'm hearing everyone saying like, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Sports Illustrated of all, you know, why would they be using AI? And I'm like, really? Why is everyone surprised that Sports Illustrated is using AI? They've been photoshopping every lump out of a woman's body for years, and we've been accepting yeah. it. Um, so I, it's just stuff like that. That was an interesting story. We interviewed the woman who broke that story, actually, in the in the states. And and what was interesting, I think, for them, I think, within the context, was how bad it was. Uh, I think that's yeah. where it sort of came up. It was how poorly it was done by a, an organization and a title that has so much on the line to lose by being caught out like this, right? So yeah, but yeah, that, it was, it, it's always interesting too, just to figure out because sometimes depending on what shows on, when, where, um, stories evolve during the day. So if you listen to a story done at you know on a morning show about something. Thing, like say you know the capture of the kangaroo right <laughs> it'll evolve during the day and, and it's, it must be a really interesting way it, to be able to take a lens to the whole thing and say here's what happened over the course of 48 hours on this particular story and then here's how audiences were reacting to it and it's a it's a really interesting way of, of approaching it because you're right so often it's in the immediate and then once it's done it's on the cutting room floor i mean it's out there and it's done right well that's it. I think it 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 all serves its purpose. I think, you know, being live and being able to reach out in real time and 
you know, talk to the audience in a different way and be break news and give you your weather and your traffic is one form of talk radio that I love. And that's what got me in the door. I've always adored talk radio. Um, but I think my approach is a little bit more like almost a, I, I did a few years of podcasting strictly and that kind of got me into this place where I'm very, I love to produce things. I love to, um, you know, like for example, maybe I'll create a small radio play one day, or we'll incorporate some other voices to make something, you know, to be, it's again, it's taking my silly seriously and paying attention to tone and paying attention to the audience. And I loved what you said off the top. It's, it's kind of approaching it from a listener aspect. Yeah. Just you and the radio universe. Uh, Danny, thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you for having me. Country's longest-running radio documentary program just marked a thousand episodes last last month. An incredible feat for Alan Cross and the ongoing history of new music, both a popular radio show and, of course, now a very popular podcast. The show made its debut back on February 28, 1993. Can you imagine? Now, with the passage of time, it's it's evolved. Obviously, the content it branched out again from radio to a podcast that is now heard around the world, and uh, he's shaping a whole new generation of music fans. It also comes at a time when we're paying tribute to one of the great. Canadian songwriters and musicians of the past half century. April Wine lead singer Miles Goodwin passed away in Halifax at the age of 75. Uh, so joining me now with more on that and more about his show, The Ongoing History of New Music, which you will now hear overnights on chorus is Alan Cross. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, congratulations. I guess you hit your thousandth episode. I, I thought we would talk about it, but here we are. Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, if you had told me back in 1993 that I would still be doing this more than 30 years later and that I would be on episode number 1000 uh, of this program, I-, I would have said that you were, you were, you were, you had brain damage. There was just no way that anything like this was going to last this long. Yet, for some reason, here we are. Don't get me wrong, I'm very grateful, but uh, it's certainly not anything that I had planned on. But it turned out to be a nice little career. A nice little 30-year run. It's been fantastic. You started off with a very sort of clear objective about telling stories about music that maybe wasn't as talked about, or at least not in the way you did uh, back in 1993. That's evolved, right, over the many years. It's evolved into something, I think, a bit broader uh, and a bigger bigger tent, essentially. Yes, it, it has. At the beginning, it was it was very focused uh, on uh, just straight history of alternative music as we knew it in the 1990s. But since then, it's evolved into a, a much larger thing as I got better at storytelling. And there were more stories to tell. And then there were all these stories that really hadn't been told before, or at least not to my satisfaction. So uh, you, you, I just kept at it and found new sources of information, new ways of telling the story, um, new things that I'd never, ever heard before. And if I'd never heard of them, you know, regular people certainly would, would have never heard of them. And I thought, okay, well, let's let's create this big tent for anybody who wants to put more context and meaning into their music by learning more about it. And in this case, I mean, when we last spoke, you were reminding me that back in the early days, I mean, you had to kind of dig through old press releases. There was no Wikipedia. There were no banned websites that you could go and sort of learn interesting stuff. In fact, that information was all kind of just scattered out there. And yet even today, you find brand new, interesting nuggets on every band you talk about, on every tune you talk about. Well, yeah, it's it's easier now because there are so many sources of, of information. Um, 
when I started, there, there weren't even any books on the subject. I mean, there were some stories of, you know, there were some um, uh, rock encyclopedias put up by people like Rolling Stone and Trouser Press and so on. But uh, there, there, there was, you know, no dedicated magazines to the, to this, to this alternative scene that was blowing up in the early 1990s. But now, you know, there's a lot to choose from. I have probably one of the largest private collections of music books in the entire country because I've continually collected these, uh, these, these sources of information. And uh, I've been around long enough so that I've actually seen some of this stuff happen. So it's first-person accounts as well. Amazing. And it's, I mean, it helps if you're a music fan or if you're into the band you happen to be talking about that day or the subject you talk, but not necessarily. What I've always enjoyed about your podcast is you don't even have to like that kind of music in particular or that band in particular to get something out of it because it's the way it's it's told. There are There's a journey, there's an arc, right? There's a narrative arc in each of these stories. That's the whole thing. Uh, it is... It is a story. Everybody loves a good story because that gives meaning and context to an artist that you might not have even thought twice about. And every music fan wants to know as much as they possibly can about the music that they love so that they can look like a star in front of their friends. And it's, you know, I hear lots of people who say that I heard you tell, tell me something on the radio or in the podcast. And then I told my friends that, and then my friends now think I'm a genius. So thank you. That's well. That's what you. I mean, that's what people are looking for. Those nuggets, right? You must yeah. have a few ones that stand. I mean, I, this is one of those loaded questions, as always, because you've told so many over the years. But you must have a few where you really walked away thinking, "Wow, that's a story I'm happy to share." Yeah, and I, gosh, <laughs> there, there there are are, are so many. I mean, in in some acts. And some scenes and some topics are just, they're so rich. I mean, if you're talking about uh, well-documented bands, uh, Oasis, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, mm -hmm. Pearl Jam, Nirvana, uh, you know, you go through all this, the, the sources and you can f collate everything into, all, into one place and come up with something really interesting. But, uh, okay, I, I found this one place and I've never been able to find it again, but it stuck with me. Apparently um, Kurt Cobain was a very big fan of vintage medical gear. Oh, wow. And at one point on a tour, he toured with his own skeleton. <laughs> that, that is obscure. That, that I mean that, you know, okay. So here, here's a guy that wrote some of the most identifiable songs of the 1990s, if not of all time. Uh, you, you did what? That is, yeah. I mean, and that's the sort of thing that people tune in for, right? That's what you get. Uh, that's what you get when you listen to the ongoing history of new music. Speaking of bands that you probably weren't talking about in 1993, because a lot of those classic Canadian rock bands kind of went through some fallow periods uh, up through the late 80s into the early 90s. Sort of the, the arrival of the much music generation sort of changed people's attitudes about tunes. But we lost Miles Goodwin this week, and it feels like we've lost a lot of big Canadian stars that represented something really special about music. And it's hard not to look back to those eras when April Wine was lighting up the charts and not have a lot of nostalgia for what they brought to the Canadian music scene. 
Yeah, I think I got introduced to uh, to Miles Goodwin with one of those uh, KTEL compilations in the yeah. early 1970s. And I'll, and I'll tell you right now, it was their cover of Elton John's Bad Side of the Moon. Oh, wow. And I thought, okay, this yeah. sounds pretty cool. And then from there, I graduated to Could Have Been a Lady. And then uh, the Stand Back album in 1975, uh, 1975 with uh, songs like um, um, Oh, What a Night. Yep. And First Glance with Roller. I was a, a big April Wine fan for many, many years, met Miles Goodwin a number of times, saw him back in October for an event at Massey Hall in Toronto, which was all about the uh, Canada's Walk of Fame. Mm-hmm. April Wine was inducted and uh, he looked fine. He sounded fine. He apparently was fine. Um, but to, for, for him to to pass away so suddenly is is pretty shocking. Yeah, it was. It felt really sudden. I mean, we had uh, we had had him. We were supposed to have him on the show last year, and something went wrong, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him. I've seen, of course, growing up in Montreal, April Wine were is sort of like if they were Canada Canada's house band. They were definitely Montreal's house band. Definitely, um, and, you know, considering yeah. considering that they came from the Maritimes and just adopted yeah. Montreal as theirs. True enough. And I remember going to see them and thinking, oh, I don't really know that many. I mean, it must have been like nineteen or twenty. I don't really know that many April Wine songs. And then recognizing every single record they played, like every track they played from yeah. the beginning to the encores, I knew all of them. Yeah, I know that song. I know that song. I know that yeah. song. Oh, it, it, that just tells you how many hits they had on Canadian radio. It was they they probably like I know they sold about ten million records. They had June eleven Juno nominations. Uh, I, I wonder how many like AM radio hits they had, add those to the FM radio hits they had. And, you know, you've got to be close to 30. Yeah, they have to be one of the most prolific, successful Canadian bands ever. I mean, they didn't have, I mean, I think it's, they were so, you talked about it earlier, they were so consistently good uh, that it was hard to sort of pick it. It's not like they would release an album every four years and then you talk about it, then they'd go away. I mean, they were so prolific that it may have, it may have, you may have forgotten about how popular they were at times. Yeah, yeah, and they could tour the country. They were playing arenas, and they would sell the arenas out. I grew up in Winnipeg, and uh, I don't know how many times I saw them play at the Winnipeg Arena. Yeah. Well, Alan, thank you so much for your time. I know audiences will love the podcast or they'll love the show when it's on, uh, on across the country on course. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Well, speaking of goodbyes, tomorrow night, Christine Sinclair, I mean, is there, has there been a more prolific and impactful player in the women's game ever? And we've had her right here at home in a Canadian jersey. She's going to bid farewell to international soccer, at least tomorrow in Vancouver when uh, Canada hosts Australia. And uh, here's what she had to say. She's been asked about it a lot this week. Here's what she had to say. Honestly, I thought, I never thought in my career that this was going to happen. All the players on the national team. We were once that young kid that that had aspirations and dreams of playing professionally and representing Canada at World Cups and Olympics. There's no secret; it's a lot of work, but man, it's the best job in the world. Yeah, they're going to rename BC Place on Tuesday uh, temporarily as Christine Sinclair Place in celebration of her final time representing the uh, women's national soccer team. It's impossible to overstate just how much of an impact the 40-year-old from Burnaby, BC has had on the games. It's making her debut 23 years ago in 2000 at the age of just 16, the youngest ever for Canada at the time. She scored a world record number of international goals 
for men or women, 190, 190 goals in 330 appearances. That is a remarkable strike rate. She's won Olympic gold. She's won bronze twice. She's been named Canadian Female Soccer Player of the Year 14 times, nominated seven times for FIFA Women's Player of the Year, awarded the FIFA's 2022 Best Award alongside Cristiano Ronaldo for her contribution to the game. Uh, She is the first soccer player appointed to the Office of the Order of Canada, the first to have her name when Canada's Walk of Fame. Uh, December 12th in BC will be Christine Sinclair Day. It goes on and on and on, but it's all it's all worth it. Her teammates, Aaron McLeod and Sophie Schmidt, by the way, will also be bidding farewell to the national team in tomorrow night's game in Vancouver. Now, Rian Wilkinson uh, is a Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame inductee herself. She's a longtime Team Canada teammate of Sinclair's, coached her to a 2022 NWSL championship with the Portland Thorns. She's now sporting director with Project 8, that Canada, that's Canada's new women's soccer league set to debut in 2025. And she joins me now. Rian, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I guess in athletics, you always, I mean, you would know this firsthand, the day always comes, but sometimes there are some players you just think they're always going to be there. And I always felt like Christine Sinclair was one of the, one of those players. Like there would never be a time where you wouldn't turn on women's soccer and, and, and watch her play. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's been around a long time, a testament to her as a player and starting so young and, and playing to, to her, her, you know, being 40, but uh, it, it will be weird to, to watch Canada soccer without her on the field. It's growing so much, though. I mean, I remember even back in those early days, uh, and I was always, you know, I was always a fan. I'm a soccer fan, so I'd watch it, and it's changed so dramatically. I mean, not just in Canada, but everywhere, and it feels like you and and all that generation of players were really part of something that blossomed into something much bigger than I think anybody could have imagined 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, even if you think about the start of our careers, we were the first generation of national team players that didn't have to have a second job. Right. Um, so really from the beginning, that 2003 team, there were still incredible players on it. Charmaine Hooper, Silvana Bertini, mm-hmm. these women already had full careers as well as playing for Canada. So we knew how fortunate we were to be getting um, any money at that time. And then seeing the evolution from then until now, it's it's incredible. It's moving so quickly. And and that's actually what gets me excited about Project 8 is people mm-hmm. that think that women's soccer is going anywhere but up or are delusional or blinded. It's it's incredible the the growth the game has has had in the last few years. Yeah. Do you have a first memory of, of, of Christine Sinclair the first time? Because I guess she would have been, she was already a bit of a phenom by the time you would have come into the team. Is that right? I'm just trying to get my, my dates right, but I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember who would have been there first. No, she she was there first, and mm-hmm. I think she already had thirty caps by the time yeah. I came along. I'm I'm a year older than her, so I yeah. I just was too old for the two thousand two U nineteen team. But I watched that tournament, and I think even though she was already playing for the national, the senior national team, that was when she really came to prominence. That her and that whole team, um, they really caught the uh, attention of the country, and probably were the, that was the first big milestone for the women's team in in terms of our growth. Yeah, do you remember? Do you remember? Playing with her, playing against her, the sort of the first time you would have come onto the field with uh, with Christine. And just to, I, it's hard as a non-athlete um, yeah. or someone who's never played at that level. It's hard to understand what what makes certain people very good at their what they do other than just mm-hmm. wow. Right. Yeah. I mean, she was already an incredible athlete, but there were there was the Charmaine Hoopers on the team and the Sylvana mm-hmm. Bertinis. And those were the women that I was most in awe of. Sinky mm-hmm. was my age and right. it was it was quiet. We were already you know, people that are the same age tend to band together, but straight away, what I remember is her in training. And I tell the story all the time and it's probably a little 
little old at this point, but I was a forward when I first joined the national team and I asked her what the trick was or how, how do you score so frequently? And without any kind of irony, she said, I put it where the goalkeeper isn't. And, you know, your first instinct is to be slightly insulted by such an obvious answer. But I do think it was so simple for her. The game, she's able to slow it down or, you know, (laughs) this ability to just be so calm. Um, And that is what she was doing. I think she's, always been a little bit confused why others cannot do what she does because it is just such a natural gift and she works on it. She's got both, um, which is why, what makes her so special in my opinion. Yeah. She seemed to have a certain, a tranquility about her in the box at the same time as being able to see how the game was moving, being able to catch a goaltender off balance or going the wrong way, which is, you know, a, a gift in if it's just being able to spot things that other people don't see. Absolutely. Her vision. She was also yeah. lightning fast. I mean, mm. as she's gotten older, her speed has has um, obviously diminished, but her vision and and what she's trying to do is still, you know, top of the game. That's that's the hard thing. It's hard to know when to retire because your your mind is as sharp as ever, but your your body is maybe giving you different signals. So it's uh, it's it's been. I'm sure it's been a hard decision for her, and it won't be an easy transition either. It's been such a big part of her life for so long. Yeah, I mean, I was I was telling you that I remember the team coming in when you had won bronze in England in, in London for the, in the London 2012 Olympics, coming into the studios. I was working at CTV at the time, and you came in, and I don't know. Ever since that that day, I used to watch the team differently because you you looked like such a unit, and it sometimes you can you know that can be overblown by people on the outside, but it, you really did look like a team, and that sort of stuck. That's been kind of all of your reputations, but also Christine Sinclair's reputation as well as having been a great teammate, uh, which isn't always the case with, I mean, I think of sort of, you know, Ted Lasso and ridiculous things, you know, (laughs) Zlatan Ibrahimovic and all the things about him, but she wasn't like that as far as I can tell. No, I think, first of all, the team, it's become very cliche. Now you do hear it a lot. We're the most connected team. We're like a family with his sisterhood. And um, the reality is that the Canadian women, we we were living together. We had to do these, these long central development camps. We moved to Italy together under Carolina Maracci. We, we've grown up together. So most of that team in 2012 was about the same age. Most of that team actually came from the 2002 under 19 group. And so we were going through all our life milestones at the same time. So it was a very, very connected team. We had our challenges, but it it was um, a group that was made even more special because our best player, Christine Sinclair, had no ego. So how could you be the one on the team who had ego? Like, I think when your star player sets a tone like that, it puts everyone in their place or it makes the guidelines very clear for behavior expectations. And that's what people I don't think speak enough about for from Sinky is we know she's quiet. She's got a quiet confidence, all these things that people say, but imagine if you're a young player who's filled with confidence, bordering on a little bit too, too big of an ego. And Christine Sinclair walks by and is muted in how she likes to speak about herself. And she really highlights team first and everything she emulates. She, she, she provides best practice to every player on that team. And that demonstration, that leadership will continue. And you see those same aspects in the Aaron McLeod and the, and the Sophie Schmidt who will be retiring with her. They are the same type of people and they are exactly the same. Aaron was on that 2002 team with um, Christine Sinclair. They brought that same kind of quiet confidence, that same team first. And Sophie grew up with it. You know, she joined the team not long afterwards and she had that same example set um, by those players that came before her. So it's, it's great to see. And I I hope it continues through the team because it's, and being continues to be passed down. 
Yeah, I should mention, of course, Aaron McLeod and Sophie Schmidt, as we've been promising to talk about. It's a big night for a bunch of people. I know we talk a lot about Christine Sinclair and it's Christine Sinclair Day on the 12th coming up and so on. Uh, it must be important then to have that. It's I guess if you don't play competitive sports or have never played competitive sports at that level, it's hard for that amount of time. It's hard to understand how much that in, that can influence a team in a room in terms of just the consistency of when new people come in, that sort of the, the, you know, the marching orders are there without them having yeah. to be necessarily explained. Yeah, the culture is so, so strong. And and Sinki herself walked into that same type of culture that mm -hmm. had already been set by the Charmaine Hoopers, the Andrea Neals, the mm -hmm. Amy Walshes. And then Diana Matheson was a big leader on our team with Christine Sinclair, big, big characters like uh, Melissa Tancredi. That culture is set by those people and it gets passed down. And that's what I love to see about this next generation, the Jesse Flemings, the Quinn, the um, Janine Beckys, these, these superstars in their own right who continue to be humble with a quiet confidence. I don't think we should be humble and and second guessing our abilities. I just mean humble in how we speak and how we promote the team around us um, and then quietly confident in what we can deliver. And that's what they've been doing the last few games. It's been great to watch. I'll stay involved in the sport. You know, it's been my life pretty much since I was four. So whether that's helping Dee in her league, whether that's coaching, we'll see, but I'll definitely be involved. Rianne Wilkinson is a Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame inductee, a longtime uh, Team Canada member, uh, obviously a, a teammate of Christine Sinclair's and Sophie Schmidt's and Aaron McLeod's. I was, I, you know, I watched, I, I was watching this year's final, thinking about last year's final, and I was, it's must have been amazing to to play with with some of some of those players and then to coach them. What was, what was that like uh, as just as an experience? Because it would have been. I imagine a lot of what you learned playing and that they, someone like Christine Sinclair would have known this about your style and the culture you wanted to build. They would have recognized it as you came in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely very hard. It's a challenging role to, to have good friends on your team, not just um, Sinky when I was coaching, you know, Janine Becky, there's a lot of players on that team who I had played against or with and, it's it's great when things are great. It's harder when you're having to be the coach and not play people or take someone off the field. It can feel very personal. And that was my biggest probably area of reflection in mm -hmm. my coaching journey. And it's something that uh, probably isn't spoken about enough because we want our former players to stay in the game and to become coaches. And so that is a reality that will be taking place. And uh, it's it was tough, but so great to also have my friends with me um, to help support me in the locker room with what I'm trying to achieve, especially when you're a coach that's that hasn't been coaching for that long. But um, it, it's been amazing. I coached um, Team GB in the Olympics against mm -hmm. Canada and went on to watch them win the gold. That was uh, an interesting in Japan, experience that's right. in Japan. Yeah. And, um, you know, coached the, the English, the Welsh, the Scottish uh, players there. And some of them I'd played against and or was coaching with uh, with some of the other teams I had. So it's a small world, the soccer world. So consistency of character and uh, and trying to stay true to yourself the whole time. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun and one of the hardest things I've ever had to do at the same yeah. time. I know that that um, Christine was asked, uh, was asked that same question today or yesterday, I think, about what she'd like to do after. And she does really want to stay in the game. But I imagine from someone who's walked that path already, that it's um, that it comes with its challenges, right? Sort of it's a different role. It's not like it's not exactly like playing um, and it demands a different skill set. And again, you know, I suppose Sinclair will, will obviously get lots of opportunities to, to uh -huh. do this, but it, it will be it's, it's a challenge, as you well know. It is. And I hope she does stay in the game. And it's been such a big part of her life. And I, I've actually been talking about this a lot. It There is no right time to retire. 
because you either nail it and you feel like you retired too early and you only realize you got it right a few years down the line or you you miss it and you play till you're injured or you're hurt or you know it, it, there's a depression that comes with it and where Sinky lands on that is is almost irrelevant there is almost a a feeling of loss that she's going to experience um and getting to stay in the game sort of helps with that cuz you're still around um, some of the same people, that same rhythm to your life. So imagine how scheduled her life has been since she was 12. That is a challenge for professional athletes to go from a very scheduled, professional, controlled life and almost loving that part to it to actually you can do what you want when you want. It's It sounds great, but it's really, really hard mental mental hurdle. Um, so I hope Sinki does consider staying in the game. She's given so much to it and made it such a incredible place for, for young women um, to play across the world. I truly feel like she's been a big part of that, but uh, we need players like Sinki, like Sophie, like Aaron to stay in the game and to, and to make sure they're continuing to help develop the next generation, but it is a hard leap and, and it does take a couple of years to get, uh, to get in the right place to do it. You must be seeing some of the fruits of all of this with with Project Dates. You spoke about Diana Matheson earlier, um, yeah. who is the CEO, I gather, of the league. Uh, it, it, tell me about a bit about that because it's it's a it's a big undertaking, and yet it feels like the time has come. It's about time, right, that we had one, and yeah. uh, you get to witness the you really do get to witness the the impact of all that you and 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 your era brought to this game and did for women's soccer in this country. Yeah, I mean, so Diana Matheson is a longtime teammate. She's she's incredible. I, I can't say enough about her. And, and essentially, she just got frustrated at waiting. I think we've heard for years and years and years, this is coming. The women's game is going to get a league. And it's just been empty. And, and we were in the last World Cup, we were the only one of two nations that did not have a domestic league, the other being Haiti. Right. Um, and we're late to the table, but that can't be an excuse not to get going. And the people that have joined on that have signed up to be a part of this are incredible top, top people who all have that same clarity of vision of what we're trying to achieve. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to, we're going to not nail everything, but we're going to do the best we can to, to not make any errors, to interview as many people, to get the right people on board. And Dinah's really driving that, that passion and clarity and what I love is just another former player who is just taking it on and and flying with it and, and being supported by Canada Soccer right now as well. So I have to say that there's a lot of people in the soccer community um, who know how important this initiative is and, and need to to get behind it for it to work. And I've loved that, that there's, there's so much politics in soccer. And at this point, everyone can almost put that aside and be like, no, this is so late in coming. We need to support this and, and do what we can to, to make sure that our young women here in Canada don't have to either retire at 21 when they retire from university or when they graduate from university or have to play abroad, that they can stay home. And not just our players, our coaches, our referees, our medical sporting personnel, our administrators, the, the job opportunities across the women's game mean that our talent can stay in Canada and not have to, to leave. Right. And the plan is still 2025. Is that right? That's right. April 2025 is the planned kickoff. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done, but we're, we're pushing for it. We've got a, a short runway, but we absolutely think um, we can get it over the line and a good job getting it over the line as well. Well, Rianne, thanks so much. My pleasure. 
Let's talk a bit about EVs because I'm always interested in in sort of not the stories, not the politics around EVs because it gets a bit, it all gets a bit much after a while. But really about the reality of EVs. Are there enough charging stations? Probably not. Are they building the infrastructure fast enough to meet all those targets? Probably not. Are they reliable? Are they reliable? Well, the jury is still out on that one. The target dates, of course, for Canadians to switch to electric vehicles are fast approaching. Uh, One-fifth of all passenger cars, SUVs, and trucks sold in Canada by 2026, apparently. Um, by 2030, 60%. By 2035, every new passenger vehicle sold in this country will need to be an electric car uh, of some sort. So incentives are, of course, driving sales these days. Canadians are making those switches. Uh, in the second quarter of this year, it saw, I think, more than 40,000 battery, electric, and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles registered in Canada. Uh, a jump from just 30,500 in the previous quarter, so 10,000 more, just about. Uh, although the market share was still steady at 8.6%, there were just more cars selling, period. But a big a big chunk of those now, nearly 10%, are EVs. But one issue with EVs, and especially plug-in hybrids, um, remains reliability. So the latest annual auto reliability survey data from Consumer Reports, this is an American nonprofit research testing and consumer advocacy organization put it puts out this report every year and people pay a lot of attention to it because it's very thorough um they found that on average new evs have 79 79 more problems than internal combustion engine vehicles on reliability uh plug-in hybrid electric vehicles even worse with 146 percent more problems oddly enough hybrids hybrids have 26 percent Fewer problems than internal combustion engine vehicles on average, according to the same survey. Uh, electric pickups are particularly problematic. Uh, the poor reliability isn't due to inherent problems with EVs, but rather the technology is new and they're stuffing them with parts that, that to make them the parts to make them are also new. So, uh, what's funny here is that the legacy car makers are having trouble with what's under the hood, so to speak, and uh, the new car makers like the Teslas are having more trouble with the vehicle itself, with the what's out, what's outside the the engine. Uh, to tell us more about all of this is Jake Fisher. He's senior director of auto testing at Consumer Reports. He is the head of this particular one, and he joins me now from Detroit. Jake, thank you so much. You're very welcome. This is a massive undertaking, isn't it? I mean, you really go out there and get uh, a lot of input about what people are thinking of the, about the vehicles they're driving. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's very easy to go look at a car and see, you know, what do you think of it? Um, you know, we obviously do extensive tests on all the cars that we test, but um, this isn't what we're talking about today. This is really about the reliability. And the only way to do that is to get the numbers. Uh, we have about 330 thousand vehicles in our latest survey and we've just combing through that data to find out really what's going on with with vehicles out there some interesting i mean stuff that isn't necessarily counterintuitive uh, about vehicles quite generally but as always this seems the japanese car makers uh or asian car makers in general are are, are doing pretty well and others are having a slightly tougher time yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, one way to look at it is some of those Asian automakers, you know, namely look at Toyota, um, Lexus that really stand out. You know, they're very conservative when it comes to new technologies. They really take their time. Um, they stick with things. They stay at the course. Um, these are the type of things that really prioritize reliability as opposed to, you know, having that excitement. Um, you know, I mean, if, you know, probably looking at all the all the information about the, the Tesla Cybertruck, which is very exciting. Um, yeah, Toyotas aren't quite that exciting, but when it comes to reliability, um, you know, they, they take the gold. You certainly uh, spent a lot of time this year sort of focusing on electric vehicles. I imagine there's good reason for that, much like in, in Canada and the U.S. too. There's a big push to get people to switch over. 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, I mean, I've been following the industry kind of all my life since I was a little kid, right? I've always been a car nut. And I've been at Consumer Reports for nearly 25 years now. And at no time in the industry has it ever been so exciting as it is right now. I mean, we're seeing such a transition in terms of powertrains. Um, Nothing like this has really happened before, you know, outside of the very, you know, birth of the auto industry where we see, you know, pure electric vehicles, plug in hybrid vehicles, hybrid vehicles, still lots of gasoline engine vehicles. Um, I wish there was more stick shift vehicles, but those seem to be going away, but they still exist. Um, but it's an exciting time. And it's just really interesting to see what what's the right answer for consumers? You know, looking at all of it, looking at the performance, looking at the reliability, looking at the costs. And that's what we really do. Yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the headlines, and I think people are like everything with new technology, especially when it comes to, to what you rely on to get to and fro each and every day, you want it to be reliable. So some of the headlines uh, after your report was released are sort of Consumer Reports pummels electric vehicle reliability, it praises hybrids. I mean, there was there's a lot to read into that. I was wondering just what you made of of the early reporting on it and how much of it was true. Clearly, you point out correctly so that anytime you have new technologies coming online. Uh, that there there's going to be there are going to be complications yeah that's right i mean i i, I kind of chuckle when i see consumer reports we pump, we didn't do anything we <laughs> we're reporting the information that are our facts and that's what we're doing um and to be clear we are this is not an indictment of electric vehicle technology saying it's more or less reliable than internal combustion engine vehicles this is just an acknowledgement of where the industry is today and right now, when you look at the electric vehicles that are out there, they are generally on fairly new platforms. They're from sometimes new automakers, sometimes a technology that is new to a existing automaker. It is not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising to anyone. There's going to be more than their fair share of problems. Add to the fact that most of these EVs are really marketed to enthusiasts or luxury buyers, and they're loaded with technology that also gives an opportunity for things to go wrong. I mean, if it was the other way around and all the vehicles for the last 100 years were electric and one automaker decided, hey, I'm going to try this internal combustion thing, it would be riddled with problems. Um, so it's just it's just an acknowledgement of where we are in the industry, and certainly it will change. Um, and there are indications that the gap is closing, that reliability gap is starting to close. Yeah, you said there was some cause for optimism. Where are the problems? I was interested to see that Tesla has has far fewer problems with 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 basically the, what's under the hood. I guess that's not the case, but what's <laughs> under the what's under the hood, and uh, and other car makers are having a lot more trouble with. Uh, I mean, sorry, Tesla is really good at what's under the hood and other car makers are having the uh, having the opposite trouble. So you're sort of seeing right. uh, companies being very good at certain things, struggling with other aspects of what is I, I think we forget sometimes what a complex process building an automobile is. Well, that's exactly right. So if you look at some of the newer automakers out there, um, you look at things like uh, you look at Rivian or you look at uh, Lucid um, and, you know, they're pretty new at mass producing a car. And it is not an easy process for anybody out there who has been in an automotive plant. It is, it, it's like, you know, makes Charlie and the Chocolate Factory look like, you know, pretty, pretty simple. Um, it, it's, it's amazing what goes into mass producing these vehicles. And there's a lot of areas um, of a problem. And all you need is like one or two issues. And you could really make the buying experience um, and the ownership experience um, really quite frustrating for anyone who who has one of these vehicles. So when it comes to some of the newer automakers, we're seeing issues that, I mean, quite honestly, a lot of the auto industry has worked out for a long time. I mean, 
<clears throat> issues of just reliably making the doors open and close or the door handles work or 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 something like that or broken trim pieces. When you look at the um <clears throat> the existing automakers, you know, they're just new to this technology. So they're having issues with, you know, just brand new platforms and new powertrains that they're not used to. And they don't have that long history that they do with internal combustion engine via, uh, technology. Um, Tesla is kind of a bit of the sweet spot in the EV industry, just because no one really has more history in terms of building electric powertrains than Tesla at this point. And they've been around long enough. I mean, going on, you know, over a decade now of mass producing cars. So they're working out some of those growing pains that were plaguing them before. Yeah. And, and you did mention, of course, that some of the bigger automakers are just struggling to find their feet uh, when it comes to EVs. Clearly, they see the benefit of them because there's so much incentive to buy them. They feel like they need to get into the market. But it, but it, but shifting gears that quickly, which is surprising sometimes when you look at, at major automakers, but they're all they seem to all be having a certain amount of trouble with this technology at this point. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, again, it's just it's new. It's new. Anything that's new, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, we see this time and time and again when you know those the infotainment systems started coming on the market, right? Where suddenly you have that big screen on your car. There was a lot of problems with those early on. Um, just any type of technology that's new, you're gonna have growing pains with them. It's important that the automakers, you know, go through this learning curve because in the future this may be more of an issue and more important when you're building your fleet. So just having that 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 history is really important. And you look at some of the automakers that are investing even in fuel cell technology. You know, it's not that everyone's going to buy a fuel cell vehicle today. Obviously, they're going to be really early adopters. But to be able to go and, you know, have that technological know-how over the years, that's going to serve them in the long run. Jake, some interesting ones around plug-in uh, HEVs, which I didn't, and 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 hybrids or plug-in hybrid EVs, I guess, and hybrids themselves, where there was a big difference there. And I guess there aren't that many of the of the former on the market, really, uh, but still, some something for consumers to consider, I guess. Yeah, so so plug-in hybrids are really kind of an interesting type of vehicle, and we're seeing more of them on the market. Obviously, they're a very small uh, player, but um, these are vehicles that presumably could give you the best of both worlds, you know, in terms of a plug-in hybrid, you have a small electric battery that could probably get you through your commute. I mean, no one's going to want to buy an EV that only has, you know, 50 miles of range. You'd be, you know, spending your life at the charging stations. But these are vehicles that have maybe between 30 and 40 miles of range, and then they have a gasoline engine as well, if you need to take a longer trip. Kind of the best of both worlds. The problem is, is that because you have the best of both worlds, you do have both worlds under the hood. So that means that you have more things that can break. Not only do you have all of the parts in the, in the internal combustion engine, but you also have a charging system. You also have a battery in the motor and all of those pieces. Um, so we found that the reliability of those actually were even worse than EVs on average. But I will caution the whole on average because we're really looking at the population of vehicles that are plug-in hybrids right now. And when you look at that population, a lot of those plug-in hybrids are not from necessarily very reliable automakers anyway. You look at the automakers that are really um, kind of early adapters in this technology, and you have automakers like Stellantis. So you have like Chrysler and Jeep. Um, they're putting out a lot of those. Not the most reliable brands. Again, put more technology on it. You could have more problems. 
Uh, Volvo, also another example, having a fair amount of these plug-in hybrids. So that's that's kind of a contributor to it. But if you look at Toyota, which has plug-in hybrid versions of the Toyota RAV4 and the Prius, which are both, you know, they're designated the prime versions, those actually are very reliable. Interesting. So, so a lot of it just depends on the company itself and where they're at with their own technology, with their own capacity within the technology, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and that's, you know, super important. You know, again, we're not, it's not an indictment for technology saying that this technology is better than other. We're looking at the whole picture and you can't ignore where the market is right now. So if you're looking for a plug-in hybrid or an EV, this is where the market is right now, um, which really brings us to run-the-mill hybrids. You know, and hybrids are these vehicles that they do not, you can't plug them in. You don't need to plug them in. You just drive them like a normal car, but they get, in some cases, just incredible uh, fuel efficiency. And these vehicles, actually, we found had less problems than internal combustion engines by adding the um, the hybrid to it, which is really kind of, I, I you know, really, it's kind of a great part of the auto industry. It's kind of the sweet spot for if you're really looking for something that is, you know, fuel efficient and reliable, there's a lot of options. A lot of them are from very reliable automakers. Think Honda and Toyota. And the point is, when you look at Honda and Toyota, we're going on about a quarter of a century of know-how of making these hybrid electric vehicles. And that's really behind why they can be so reliable. It's not brand new technology and they're not being packaged with all the latest gizmos like we're seeing in EVs. The hybrid cars are just, you know, again, very practical vehicles. They look like the gas counterparts, um, not loaded with technology and not as much going wrong with them. Yeah, slow and steady, right? Slow and steady wins yeah. the race. Um, right. Just overall, when you looked at, because I think there were a lot of interesting things we could talk about. I mean, clearly North American automakers are still having some trouble on the reliability front. The Japanese and Asian automakers are doing doing well. The Germans sort of a mixed bag. Mercedes yeah. was way down. Um, so just in the grand scheme of things and reliability, I guess, um, you know, do your homework, right? That's what it boils down to. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You have to look at the individual models. Um, you can't go and say, wow, you know, Asian automakers are good, so I'm going to go pick this, you know, Infinity, and it's got to be good. Well, some may be, some may not be. So you really got to do your homework. You got to look at the individual model and look at the history. And, um, you know, reliability is really important when you're buying a car. You, you know, especially today, cars are so expensive. You know, you may be keeping this car for five or 10 years. You don't want to be constantly having to worry about it getting fixed. Well, Jake, as always, good work. We'll look forward to 2024s. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. We'll come all the way out west for this story because this is a really, really great story in so many ways. The Forbes top 30 under 30, you may have seen the um, some of the ads that have been out there over the past little while or some of the names that are on those lists. I mean, they really do highlight younger people doing some absolutely groundbreaking and exciting work. If you're well above 30, such as I am, well above 29, such as I am, it always makes you feel a little envious because those CVs at 29 are so remarkable. Um, one of them who made the grade this year in the healthcare category is a 29-year-old, soon to graduate medical uh, school here at UBC in Vancouver. Um, and Mohit Sodi's resume would be impressive at any age, 
let alone before hitting 30. He's had more than 30 peer-reviewed publications to his name, mainly in research he's involved in looking at adverse reactions to commonly prescribed medication. He had a huge one um, covering Ozempic a little earlier this fall. He's also got a Governor General's gold medal for the most outstanding academic record among all master's students at UBC. He got that a few years back. Um, in his spare time, he volunteers with a number of local and national charitable organizations. He is the CEO and co-founder of a group called Why Not for Tots Society, a charity that has donated more than $200,000 worth of equipment to dozens of Vancouver area elementary schools over the years. And now he can add that Forbes 30 under 30 to his impressive list, again, in the healthcare category. Uh, the recipients in the category, 30 of them, have to, they include entrepreneurs and researchers who are taking on some of healthcare's biggest challenges. What's perhaps most inspiring about this whole story is, is not really the what, although the what is so impressive. Part of it is the why. Mohit has dreamed of becoming a doctor from a young age. He had that little doctor skit when he was like five or six. And it's in no small part because of the medical challenges faced by his younger sister, Rashika. He learned watching those that helped her and his family about just how much of a difference one doctor can make in the life of a single family and knew that that was what he wanted to do too. A fourth-year med student at UBC, Mohit Sodi, PhD candidate, uh, UBC Medicine, Forbes 30, top 30 under 30 joins me now. Uh, Mohit, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, this was, what, what I mean, I was looking down the list of the 30. That's an impressive group of people, yourself included, obviously. But uh, what was your reaction to finding out that uh, that you were going to be included in this year's list? Um, honestly, I was, I was shocked. I mean, it's, it's already been a few days since that happened and, you know, it's still, it's still sinking in. Um, you know, I think it'll take, it'll take a while for, for me to kind of settle down and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, get back to a normal routine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People, I guess people, a lot of people are, are calling you about it and so on. Had you ever, had you paid attention to that list before? I think it's been around for about 10, 12, 13 years now. Yeah, it came to my attention uh, probably in the last couple of years um, when I first saw it and I saw how um, incredibly impressive the people were on that list. Um, you know, my, my first thought was like, I, that's something I could never get. <laughs> you know, I was, I was just in awe of these people. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I thought, you know, why, why not? Why not try? You know, like it's it's my last chance to get it. You know, I'm, that's I'm, right. I'm 29 now. So. I mean, why not try? <laughs> yeah, I noticed you you had the Vancouver Canucks hat on in, in your photo, too. So you're repping the city and the university. Exactly. I use that. I use that picture very strategically. <laughs> <laughs> Great. How about your family? I mean, they must have been other people around you. Your family must have been pretty impressed. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, my parents are obviously, uh, you know, they're they're very happy. Um, you know, my, my sister, she was very happy. Congratulatory high five from her, which was nice. <laughs> Yeah, she, she's had a huge influence on your life, right? I mean, many. I, I, I was just reading your story many, many years ago. A good friend of mine was uh, became a doctor, and a lot of why she became a doctor was because of a member of her family who uh, had had medical issues, and that's what that's why she chose the path that she, she chose. And your sister's been a really important part about uh, your love of medicine and also your devotion to medicine. Absolutely, you know, my my sister really is my inspiration for getting into medicine. Um, you know, just for, for the listeners who who haven't heard about my sister, uh, her name is Rashika. She's a 25-year-old um, with cerebral palsy and uh, quadriplegia. She's in a wheelchair. Uh, she has severe autism spectrum disorder. Um, and throughout her entire life, she's always had, um, you know, fairly significant medical complications. So, 
Um, I think just growing up um, with a sibling um, like her, um, all the doctor's appointments, the specialists, the surgeons, um, and just being exposed to that from a very young age, I think it really um, influenced me to, to pursue medicine, you know, like I would see how well we were treated by the, by the physicians um, on our care team. And I thought that, you know, I, I hope maybe one day I'm able to provide that for some family and some patients as well. Yeah, that, that was a real eye opener that, you know, that for every even, you know, not even for the patient and the parents, but for the siblings too, the care and the attention that a that individual physicians give to their patients can register so, so acutely at such a young age. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think it's, um, you know, sometimes I, f- I feel that, you know, the, the siblings, um, you know, of, especially as you're growing up, it's, it's definitely different from, um, you know, what other sibling interactions may be like. Um, and it was really, really heartwarming. Um, and, you know, after that Vancouver Sun story came out, you know, I, I got, you know, a whole bunch of messages from people across, you know, social media, LinkedIn and things like that. Um, who also have siblings in similar situations, you know, who have very special, um, you know, siblings who are their inspiration, you know, usually these people who who reach out to me, they were in medicine, um, you know, and talking about how that was their inspiration as well. So it was really nice to kind of connect um, with these other uh, siblings of um, people uh, of, you know, uh, other siblings with disabilities. Right. And I, I gather you got to, you, you had a very, according, you had a very early interest in medicine as well. You're, you got your first doctor's kit when you were, what, five or six? Oh, yeah. I, I, I still remember it. You know, I was bugging my parents to get me a, a little doctor's kit. I can't remember if, if it was for Christmas or whatever the occasion was, but uh, I actually, I still have it. Um, uh, you know, ever since all this stuff started happening, I actually found it and I, I brought it out and I, I put it in my room and I was looking at it and, uh, huh. You know, it was it was it was definitely a you know one of those full circle moment kind of things, right? Yeah, I, I got one too, but I'll, I'll I'll be the first to admit it didn't it didn't have the same kind of impact. I mean, not that it didn't have the impact, I wasn't able to follow through with it. I think I may have used it as a hockey stick or something. Um, the just so listeners understand, I mean, the field that you've been that you are in, the research field that you were in, which has gotten a lot of attention, is a really fascinating one, which is sort of the adverse effects of commonly used. Uh, medication, even something as recent as Ozempic, which got a whole bunch of attention just a few months ago, something that you'd worked on. Yeah, so uh, my my field uh, of research is in pharmacoepidemiology. It's a bit of a more niche field. Um, so like you mentioned uh, so well, that is investigating the adverse events of very commonly used medications. And uh, yeah, the, our, our most recent publication was, uh, you know, in JAMA, and it was investigating the uh, adverse events of medications like Ozempic, Wigovi, Rebelsis, um, you know, and we, we found that there was an increased risk of, um, you know, the, the gastroparesis, which was that stomach paralyzing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found an increased risk of pancreatitis, which is inflammation of the pancreas, uh, as well as bowel obstructions as well. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, how did you, how did you come into that field or that part of medicine? What, what fascinated you about that? Um, well, after I, I, you know, uh, finished my undergrad degree at EBC, um, I wasn't exactly too sure um, if I want to kind of go down the clinical route of medicine or whether I want to go down the research side. Um, so I kind of um, did a little bit of both, uh, you know, a bit of experimenting. So, uh, you know, I, I, I pursued a master's degree and I also um, trained as a, a paramedic of the Justice Institute of British Columbia. Um, so I kind of got a bit of, of taste of both worlds. Um, and then, you know, eventually I, you know, I, I applied to medicine and, you know, I got in, but I, I still love the research. So I wanted the both, the best of both worlds. Right. Um, and my, my supervisor, Dr. Meyer at Minan out of UBC, 
Um, you know, we hit it off from the first day. This was probably seven years ago. Um, he's such a smart guy. And, you know, we've continued working together um, since. So it's just a great relationship that we have. And, you know, we're constantly bouncing ideas off each other and, uh, you know, kind of kind of culminated, you know, to where we are today. Uh, but Mohit, you have you have a charity as well called Why Not for Tots that sounds that you do some work with as well. You've tell me a bit about that, because I don't know where you find the time, but but you do. Yeah, so uh, uh, One Up for Tots is a is a charity that I co-founded um, about seven seven eight years ago, and uh, I think Global News had, had has covered it in the past as well. Um, and uh, you know, we we provide a lot of uh, um, school equipment, um, community kitchen supplies, much needed equipment for um, underrepresented uh, elementary schools and uh, pediatrics for, uh, focus, not forecast, focused organization. Focus. Yeah. yeah, focused organizations in uh, in the lower mainland. Yeah. Where do you find the time? I mean, I, I know you're at home. You're still sort of part involved with your sister's care as well, helping out your parents. Uh, you, you're, you're doing this. You're about to become a doctor and you find time for charity stuff as well. You, I mean, you're you're always busy, I gather. Uh, a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> My resting heart rate must be in the hundreds. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, the, the charity work, um, you know, just growing up in a, in a, in a Sikh, in the Sikh community and in a Sikh family, uh, you know, we're, we're constantly instilled the values of giving back to the community. Um, and I think, um, you know, we, I, I honestly, I, I see it as a, um, as an opportunity for me to kind of get outside the world of medicine and use it as like an outlet as well. You know, I end up meeting so many, uh, insp uh, inspiring, um, you know, young, uh, you know, young kids and teachers, um, who have great stories. Um, so yeah, I think I would say I need it, you know, just to kind of, you know, take a little bit of a break from, you know, the, the mental exhaustion that's medicine. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, that in fact, this is a bit of a, something this, that you'd, you'd, end up very much not in a silo, but that you end up in a very similar environment with very similar, very potentially very similar people if you're working that closely on something that highly specialized. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, um, you know, it's, it's just a great opportunity to kind of get out in the community, you know, give back and just, you know, hear other people's stories. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to. I don't want to close the chapter on it because I know you're not 30 yet. But uh, you, you've made the top 30 under 30 uh, for Forbes in healthcare. You will be turning 30 soon. I don't want to. Age is just a number, right? I mean, that's been said a million times. But given all that you've done in your 20s, what does what does the 30s look like? You must have. You must already have some goals. Uh, I refuse to admit that I'm ever going to turn 30. <laughs> yes, that's a good attitude, by the way. I think there's that Friends episode as well, where everyone was freaking out about turning 32. So I definitely uh, I'm looming on that. But I mean, uh, you know, be, you know, before we we chatted, um, you know, I was I was working on my uh, my residency applications for medicine, uh, so for specializations in medicine. Um, what's next? I mean, I you know that's un unfortunately in a way that's not really up to me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'll we'll find out in a few months. Maybe we'll have a chat in March, and uh, I can tell you where I'm going to be. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think the the most important thing for me is, um, you know, where I see myself is continuing to help people. You know, that's why I got into medicine. That those are the values that have been instilled in me from a young age. So I think really just trying my best to make a positive impact on the community. Um, and, you know, whether that's through my philanthropy, whether that's through my research, whether that's through uh, my clinical practice, uh, I think, you know, ultimately that's that's the end end game for me. Yeah, I guess I guess the thought of a residency, having known people who've gone through residencies, that, that's a lot of time. I mean, that chews up a lot of your a lot of your time period, a lot of your energy period. That must be a bit daunting, given the other things that you like to do. 
Yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, I'd like, well, at least I'd like to think over the, uh, you know, the past past years of, uh, you know, kind of learned how to, you know, balance the different aspects of my life. Obviously, residency is going to be a whole other beast that uh, will probably end up having a steep learning curve as well um, with being able to manage all, you know, all the other stuff that I do. Um, but, you know, I, I look forward to it. You know, I'm always accepting of a challenge and, uh, you know, we'll we'll see how it goes. Right. And your sister gave you a high five for this one, right? She she must have been proud that you got that you got into this top this top 30 under 30. Yeah, she gave me a high five, but then uh, you know, she she did go for my hair. She always likes to pull my hair. Uh luck, lucky for me, I don't have a whole lot left. So uh, you know, I, I got saved by that. But you know, I'm glad I at least got the high five and she's happy for me for that. Yeah, I I forget, of course, you, you're she's an inspiration, but you're also siblings, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I I always say that, you know, just because you know, she has these disabilities doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the sibling relationship is any different. It's the same as any other siblings. I'm always going to be her big brother and she'll always be my little sister. Well, well congratulations on making the, the top 30 under 30. That's fantastic. Good luck with everything that lies ahead. Hope to talk to you again. Awesome. Thank you so much.